Well, it is great to be with you this morning as we continue to walk through the whole story and how great is it to celebrate with these that are being baptized all day today. Um, yeah, it's a great. <clears throat> I don't know if you've caught this, if you've been around here, but um, I'm pretty sure the scripture is about this and we're about this is God's all about transforming lives and we get to be a part of that. And so baptism is this incredible testimony of lives transformed by the power of the gospel. So today, if you would, turn with me to Judges 21, verse 25. That's where we'll start reading from this morning. If you don't have a Bible, there's one under the seat ahead of you, or it's on your phone. Please don't text while I'm... No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> uh, so we are walking through the whole story, and uh, last week, um, some of you know, I had the extreme privilege of preaching at Mission View Church here in town as they lost my friend and their pastor, Steve Marshall, and um, we want to continue to pray for them as a church as they walk through the season. But one of the things that I do know, and we'll be in it in Judges today, is Steve. Steve was a disciple maker, and there is a gen generation of people that have been left after him, and I'm pretty sure their church is going to be just fine because of the man and the leader that Steve was. And so it was incredible for me to be able to be there. It was a privilege, and also it was wonderful to be able to, to encourage a sister church here in town. Dave Short was with us. Aren't you grateful for our staff and our team and our pastors? Incredible group of men that we have serving and preaching and leading here. So where we are, we're in the whole story. And so just a quick recap. We have the creation, just to, just to keep us moving through this. Creation, right? God makes all things. Patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Exodus, God takes the people of Israel out of captivity into the wanderings. Last week then... Dave preached on conquest, so just again, recap, creation, patriarchs, exodus, conquest, and now this week, we move into the era of the judges. Now, the judges are an interesting era because they take up a pretty good chunk of time. We're in a 350-year period, and so it took us exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, right? That was about, I don't know, 50-some years, right? Maybe a little bit longer. And now we have a 350-year chunk in one book of the Bible. And so we're going to go through all 350 years very quickly this morning, right? So this morning, if you will, let's stand together and read Judges 21, verse 25. Now, just so you know, as we read this, 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 kind of, this is going to be repeated twice in the text. Um, <clears throat> this is going to be repeated twice in, in, in uh, Judges. 21, 25, and it's also going to, it's kind of the theme of the whole book. Judges 21, 25, the end, the capstone, the whole book reads, In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Read it again. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Eyes. Father, would you illuminate our eyes to the truths of your gospel, that we might see the fullness of who you are and what you've done, that we might honor you to the fullness that we possibly can with our very own lives. Lord, use me, speak to us, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> so defining what our deepest need is, right? This is a, a question that we all have to wrestle with in our own lives is, what is truly my deepest need? Have you ever thought about that? Just one question. What is my deepest need? I would say that all of us, whether you've thought about it or not, 
you believe something about that question. What is my deepest need? And I believe that your deepest need, what you believe it to be, defines how you live and what you pursue. Anybody with me this morning? I need an, I can get down with that, right on, pastor, whoop, there it is, something, right? I just added a new one. All right, so let's listen to some old music. And so, uh, right, <clears throat> defining what our deepest need is, and then in that, a willingness to humble ourselves to find it. The question is, I believe, and it's true within the text that we're going to find today, is what is it that drives me in my life? Now, what I'll say is I, I believe this is a, a much more profound question than any of us might ever achieve or see in our own lives because our heart is very difficult and challenging to decide what it is that it's pursuing and going after. So, but defining our deepest need and what it is. Now, I believe, I think, you're, we're at church today, right? So you, you expect an answer from this pulpit, and you're going to get it, right? The deepest need for all of us is a love for God, the one who created us and made us, a longing and a love for him supremely. But not just, not just loving him, but a love that leads to a surrender of saying, God, you are in charge, I am not. And that surrender saying, God, I don't know exactly what it means to love you and to live for you, but I want to. And so, Lord, would you invest in me and might you use men and women to invest in my life? And then from there, moving to succession, that, Lord, would you not let my learning end with me, but might it be passed on to someone else that they might learn and that it might be passed on and passed on. See, what is the engine that drives the heart? Is it my own eyes, my own perceptions, my own thoughts, or a love of God, a love of my Savior, what he has done on my behalf on the cross? Am I concerned about doing what is right in the eyes of the Lord? Or am I concerned with doing right in my own eyes due to my felt wants, pleasures, and longing? See, we live with the mentality, and I, I believe this is true. It's not just a cultural thing. We, we're kind of a herd mentality people as, as the creation of God. God made us to respond kind of in community with others. The question is, is am I moving with the right community or am I not? So if the crowd is always right, then Joseph's brothers would have been right to throw him in the pit and leave him for dead, right? The crowd isn't always right. And I would say specifically in this text that the Christian crowd, the Israelites, they weren't right. And if you went with the crowd, you were going to be led to somewhere really bad. So I'm not talking about culture. I'm not talking about society. I'm not talking about media. I'm talking about Christians. And if you always go with the crowd you might not end up where you want to be. And so in this text, what we find is the people of God, they intermingled themselves. They let a lot of things kind of seep in. We're going to unpack this. And they lived with the mentality that kind of, it can't be wrong if everyone's doing it. See, what I believe is there is one book, the Bible, 
there is one way, there is one Christ, there is one faith, there is one confession. And our job is to go after the one as hard and as fast as we can. And if we ever lose sight of these ones, we'll lose sight of it all. So Judges is set up like this, and you could read it like this. Just start in chapter 17, and then read back to 16. And so 17 through 21, and the, the end of it is going to be the Levitical priests. And so this is kind of after the time of, of Joshua. He's, he's died, and now the judges are going to come in to rule and reign. And so 17 starts the Levitical priests, and it's going to kind of unpack it. And then, then kind of 1 through 16 is going to unpack the judges that come into being. So the chronological order, and I, some scholars believe this, and I, I believe this is true. If you read it, 17 through 16 would be the appropriate order to write it. I wish someone would have consulted me on this. And so, uh, so again, 350-year time frame. It's a small book with a long history. So Judges 2.1 says it like this. Uh, that In 2.1 through 11, it's going to unpack it like this. And then we're going to read 11 through 19 and unpack it together. So, so it works like this. In Judges 2.1, the angel of the Lord spoke to them directly. And they disobeyed God's instruction. They didn't drive out all the people. So they've been conquering and conquesting. God said, get all the people out of the land. They, they don't love God. They, they, they chase after all kinds of idols and, and they worship other things. It was like literally very demonic in, a, in, in every sense of the way. He says, get away from them. But they kind of conquest, and they're like, well, these people aren't that bad. These girls are kind of pretty. And they began to intermarry, and they began to do all these things that God told them not to do. So they, they directly disobeyed God's instructions. They did not drive out all the people. They set themselves up for failure. And the Lord said to this, that because you've disobeyed me, there is going to be a thorn in your side now as a consequence. And so what was their issue? Well, they had a failure to believe and obey. So the voice of God, it was heard. It was just disregarded. Hello? Right? It was heard, but it was disregarded. They had a failure to disciple. They didn't educate a generation. They had ease of life in the promised land. They had a toleration of evil, and they were attracted to the world and to things that were ungodly and that opposed him. And I want to say that again. They had a failure to disciple. They didn't pass on to the next generation because they were too consumed with what they wanted rather than what God had commanded. They had an ease of life if they did it good enough, if not wasn't going to change their quality of life, so they thought. They had a toleration of evil. They let evil just keep creeping into their life. It's kind of like this. It was an avalanche that they were just standing on, but the avalanche was just solid ground. They didn't realize how far it was moving down the mountain. And the world was very attractive to them that they had taken over, and they found peace with it. So this leads to a sin cycle in their life. This leads to a sin cycle in their life, and this is what is going to be repeated over and over and over and over and over and over and over in the book of Judges. 
So when we, so here's the point. When we don't believe God and don't obey him, when we don't teach our children younger generations, then it leads to the sin cycle, and each generation is a downward cycle getting worse. Now, this isn't like a thought of my own. This is the book of Judges. This is true. I want to say it again. When we don't believe God and don't obey him, when we don't teach our children and younger generations, then it leads to a sin cycle, and each generation is a downward cycle getting worse. So the first thing that we see, so let's, let's unpack Judges 2, 11 through 19. It'll be on the screens for you if you have, again, if you have a Bible, turn there. Judges 2, 11 through 19. So we're going to unpack this quick and then get into um, your notes on the back. So it reads, I'm going to kind of talk as we go through this and explain it. So in the people of Israel, right, the chosen people of God, the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. So they did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Now, if kind of look, looking back here just for one second and in verse 10, what it says is, And all this generation also were gathered to their fathers, and there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done in Israel. So, again, this was their issue. There arose another generation after, whom, after them who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. So they did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. They had no independent strength outside of the person leading them. No independent strength. So they did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals, which Baals are kind of this way in the Old Testament, even Jesus will speak to it this way, this kind of universal term for idols, for these other things following in. And purely it was like this master or Lord would be the, the name in the Hebrew. It's this master Lord, something that has supreme authority in our lives. Now, Baal literally was a fertility god, um, but, but in this, it's kind of this general term. So it continues. And they abandoned the Lord. For Lord, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt, they went after other gods, meaning they were pursuant. It wasn't something just a bystander. They went after because they thought they would find life and pleasure in these other gods. From among the gods of the peoples who were around them and bowed down to them, and they provoked the Lord to anger. They abandoned the Lord and served the Baals and the Ashroth, which again is another kind of universal term for idols and the gods of the people. So the anger of the Lord. So now this has been said twice. And now this kind of 11 through 13, it's going to go like this. They serve the Baals. They abandon God. They provoke gods. They worship gods. They abandon God. And they went after Baals. It's going to be just kind of redundant and pointed that they have left and abandoned God. So this is kind of, by the way, again, this is the summary of the entire book right here. So the anger of the Lord, his wrath, was kindled against Israel, the covenant people. They were faithless in God, their creator, and he gave them over to plunderers who plundered them. This is like, we don't use these words, it's like there's pirates, right? Like, uh, he gave them over to plunderers who plundered them, meaning that they, 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 they raided their hearts, their land, right? Their desires, their hopes, they, they raided them, they, they, they plundered them, they took the most precious things they had from them. And he sold them into the hand of their surrounding enemies, he gave them over. I think this is a good way of saying it, that you want it, 
go for it. So, he, he, again, he, so, and he sold them into the hand of their surrounding enemies so that they could no longer withstand their enemies. Whenever they marched out, the hand of the Lord was against them, against them for harm. As the Lord had warned and as the Lord had sworn to them, and they were in terrible distress. Just so you know, when you rebel, when we rebel against God, you will come against disaster and difficulty. Anyone rebelled against the Lord and know what I'm talking about. When, when we go against God, we will reap the repercussions. And they were in terrible distress. To the bones, they were aching in their lives. Then the Lord raised up, verse 16, then the Lord raised up judges. The names are going to come. We're going to walk through them. Who saved them out of the hands of those who plundered them. Divine leadership through a man. God brought them out of their captivity once again. Yet, verse 17, they did not listen to their judges. For they were whored after other gods and bowed down to them. So really, even in their requesting to God, they were still being selfish because it wasn't about God, it was about them. God, rescue me for me, don't rescue me for you. They were selfish and they were rebellious and they whored after other gods, they bowed down to them. They soon turned aside from the way in which their fathers had walked. Again, they soon turned aside. They had moments, but not a life of devotion. Self-gain, again, not for God's glory. From the way of their fathers had walked and who had obeyed the commandments of the Lord, and they did not do so. They weren't like their moms and dads. They weren't like the generation before they left God. Whenever the Lord raised up, verse 18, whenever the Lord raised up judges for them, the Lord was with the judge. His divine anointing was on these judges. And he saved them from the hand of their enemies all the days of the judge. For the Lord was moved to pity by their groaning. Again, he loved them. Because of those who afflicted and oppressed him. But whenever the judge died, they turned back. And here's the principle, I just said it a minute ago. And were more corrupt than their fathers going after other gods. Serving them and bowing down to them. They did not drop any of their practices or their stubborn ways. So the way to think about it is they began to spiral downward. And in their spiraling downward, they would hit a place. And that place that they would hit, they would have a moment of saying, oh, no, I need help. And God would raise up a judge. Now, they didn't really rise up. They just kind of stayed where they were. In that moment, they had a little bit of peace. And then as the judge died, they just spiraled downward again. And they kept going lower and lower and lower, becoming less devoted less likely to cry out, less likely to look to God. So within this passage, within the book of Judges, we see maybe three main things. The first is we see the cycle of sin, which was just just kind of illustrated in this text, which was just said in this text. So this is how it works. So if you're following, so the cycle of sin. This is Israel and God. Israel rebels. They say, I want to go my own way. God, there seems to be something better and brighter than you. I'm going after it. So they go after it. So then God responds. God says, you want it your own way? Go for it. Have it your own way. Chase after it the way you want. So he gives them over to themselves. Israel comes to a place where they are distressed. 
right? And so Israel repents and says, oh God, what have we done? We've rebelled against your rule. We've rebelled against your authority. We, we realize now that we need you. Come and help me. And so God hears their cry, their great distress, and God rescues. He has great compassion on them. And he comes in their distress, raises up a judge, a ruler to come underneath them. And the ruler does that for a season. And in that season, Israel finds rest. And so this is how it works again. Israel rebels, God responds. Israel repents, God rescues, Israel rests. And then the cycle begins again. Israel will rebel, God will respond, Israel will repent, God will rescue, Israel will rest. So this is their sin cycle, in which we're going to go into this just briefly with the judges. But the cycle of sin, this also works out in our life. I don't know if we know this, but, but it works out in our life. And so it works like this. We rebel against God. And we say things to God like this. I don't think your ways are as good as you say they are. I'm going my own way. We run our own way and God says, God's response is, go for it. Have your own way. Go about your life and be merry. Hope it works out for you. We come to a place where we are overwhelmed and we repent. Conviction comes on our hearts. We say things like this, Lord, forgive me. Forgive me. Forgive, forgive me for harming not only you, but forgive me for harming those around me. Come to a place of brokenness. God hears our cry, and he acts. Rescue. He acts and removes guilt. He removes shame. He removes fear. And then in those moments when our guilt and our shame and our fear are removed, we find rest, we find peace in his presence. And then maybe a month, maybe a week, maybe two days, maybe two years, we find peace with God, we find rest with his people, and then we begin to dabble, and we begin to move, and we begin to wonder, is God really that good? Does he really have all this for me? And we, like them, rebel God responds and says, have your way. And then we come to a place, hopefully, maybe, of repentance again. And then God hears our cry. Praise God that he doesn't ever turn deaf to us. And he'll rescue. Find rest. But I don't know about you. I've, I've been through this sin cycle in my life. Raise your hand if you've been through this sin cycle in your life. All you liars who didn't raise your hand, right? Uh, <clears throat> We, we, we go through this in our lives, but I'll tell you this for me, it's exhausting, isn't it? It's exhausting acting like we have it all together, and it's exhausting going through getting right, dishonoring our Father, moving into places and spaces that we know don't honor Him in our hearts and maybe even physically in our lives. It's exhausting. So what if... What if we could just live in a place of rescue and rest? Praising God for the rescue we have received and experiencing his rest and his peace overwhelmingly day to day of our lives. Now again, if you follow the crowd, you may get what the crowd and you, what you want. 
See, this is, again, this is about, I think the only way that we live in rescue and rest is, is when we live in a place of, the Bible, biblical terms here is of consecration, of submission, of recognizing the authority of God, that God is highly exalted and no man is. And we come to realizations in our lives that we are far worse than we know and our God is far better than we can imagine. And we consistently and perpetually live in his rescue and his rest rather than in rebellion. So the second thing that we see, and we're going to walk back through this, but the second thing that we see is the need for leadership. The need for leadership. Now this is really where the sin cycle is repeated in the book of Judges. So I'm going to walk through these judges that we see in the book briefly. So Othniel, he was the first judge, and what he was is he was filled with the Spirit of the Lord. And a leader filled with the Spirit of the Lord brought them 40 years of peace. Othniel dies, and the guy is, is raised up named Ehud. Now, for those of you who are left-handed in the room, raise your hand, right? Dude, a left-handed guy, can you imagine this? I didn't think left-handed people could do much good at all. <laughs> just kidding. Seriously, whoever was just offended, I'm seriously kidding. Ehud was a lefty, right? Which is this, the judges are, are kind of this curious. Read through the book of Judges. Uh, it's, there's these curious things. You just wonder, like, there's like two sentences for this person, and left-handed was like his defining marker. And so um, Ehud was a lefty full of wisdom and courage, and they experienced 80 years of peace under his leadership. Shamgar. Shamgar, um, listen to this. After him was Shamgar, the son of Anath, who killed 600 of the Philistines with an ox goad. And he also saved Israel. That's all we know about Shamgar. He killed 600 men. Now, an ox goad is a six-foot-long stick that's pointy at the end of it. Dude was bad. This is like William Wallace kind of like spears. Anyway, there should be a movie that we just make up a bunch of stuff about Shamgar. Right? We don't know much about Shamgar. But again, he led 600 men with an ox goad, and he was a warrior. Deborah, prophetess, was full of wisdom. And underneath her and her leadership, there was 40 years of peace in the land. Gideon. Now, Gideon and Samson are the two that we know most about, that typically when we think about judges, these are the two that we talk about. Now, Gideon, right, people are going to drink water in different ways. One's going to drink normally, one's going to lap water like a dog, and he's going to use this to decide his, who's going to fight with him. I love Samson because he ties foxes' tails together and he catches, lights them on fire, which is really a bad, like, PETA doesn't like that whole thing, like lighting foxes on fire. Um, a very inventive way to just light up a whole area, right? And so, uh, read about it. And so, Gideon, now we know Gideon by his two stories, one, how he picks soldiers, which I just alluded to, and then the other is the fleece, um, where he puts out a fleece, and this is how he detects what it is that God wants him to do. But in Gideon's leadership, they also experienced 40 years of peace. Abimelech, now Abimelech was a bad dude, like he was the worst of all these guys. He killed 70 of his brothers, um, in order to get leadership. And so Abimelech is just, he was just bad. He's mentioned in this. Um, what I love it about, so all, all you ladies in the room, you'll appreciate this. Um, so, so he, a woman takes, takes rock, throws it down on his head as he's going up to kill her. And 
he falls down, he's not dead yet, and he tells this sword carrier guy with him, he says, hey, kill me because I don't want the legend to be that a woman killed me. So anyway, there's that about him. Um, bad dude that got killed by a woman. Girl power, right. <clears throat> Did I tell you I live in a house full of women? I'm all about some girl power. So, uh, <clears throat> so then we have Tola and Jer. Know very little about them. There was a 22 and a 23-year reign of them. Jephthah, Jephthah, which, again, is a very complex man, devoted, and I'm just going to say it again, just extremely complex leader, and, and all the things that God did in his leadership and his devotion. Samson was mighty, but deeply flawed in his character. He was a sensual man who sought, he, he is the prototype figure of masculinity in our society, yet he isn't a man really at all because of the things his heart desired and longed for. He was strong, he was handsome, he had it all together, but his sensuality, his pride, and his selfishness killed him. Pride and selfishness are not the core characteristics of a man, that God, a man after God's own heart. Samson, mighty, flawed, again, ties foxes together, takes out a thousand men, overtaken by his pride. But at the end of his life, right, he has a moment, a moment of faithfulness where he takes his own death and kills many of the enemy. And then tucked in here, it's not in the book of Judges, but it's in the time frame of the Judges, there's another story. And the story is the book of Ruth. And Boaz and Ruth lived in the same time. Now, if you ever want to do a little study, our women's ministry director, Christy, she does one on this. It's really great. And she talks about the difference in masculinity between Samson and Boaz. Boaz was a man filled with kindness, filled with gentleness, who took in the hurting. And Samson was the opposite Boaz was a real man. Samson was by far uh, hypocritical, the anti of what a real man is. So this is kind of the characters. These are the people, Othniel, Ehud, Shamgar, Deborah, Gideon, Abimelech, Tolan, Jer, Jephthah, Samson, Boaz, Ruth. These are the characters. These are the figures through the season, the time of the judges. But what we learn from these is leadership is a necessity. Leadership is a necessity, and it comes at great cost, yet with great expectation. Leadership is a necessity, and it comes at a great cost, yet with great expectation. And I'll say it like this. Leaders without succession leave a generation behind. And we see that with every judge. We see it with Joshua. We see that leadership without succession will always leave people behind. We see it over and over. 80 years, and there was no one raised up, and they went after their own. So this week, I got on Facebook, I, I saw a message, and there was a, a man that I spent a great deal of time with when I was young in ministry. When I was in seminary, I got an invitation. I got an invitation to a guy's living room. It was at 6 a.m. His name was Herb Hodges. Herb was, I always joked, when, when Herb was, when we'd go to his table, I always wondered if Herb was going to make it through the session because Herb was really old when I was meeting with Herb. And Herb would disciple people continuously. And it was like this covert operation. So this is how it worked meeting with Herb. I would get an email like at 6 o'clock the night before we were supposed to meet. And the email, it was said, 
Herb wants you to come to his house tomorrow morning at 6 a.m. If you show up late, don't show up at all. That was the email. And so I would go, and I would, I would knock on the door at 5.55, I would, and I'd sit in the driveway for 10 minutes prior because I didn't want to be late. And Herb was a man who discipled people perpetually, all, all of his ministry, all of his life, literally country after country. I, I remember I've, I've been in multiple countries where I mentioned his name and people knew him. This guy that none of you know, but has greatly impacted the world through making disciples. This week, Herb passed away. And I got to watch his funeral um, online, praise God for all of the ways in which we can interact from a distance. I got to watch his funeral services online. I was reminded of Herb's commitment to making disciples, and this was really his, his whole thing with his entire life. And I remember, I remember one specific morning being in Herb's house, and I remember him I remember him as he was reading Ephesians 1, 18 through 23. I remember at one point as he was reading the text, he stopped talking. And it was this long, awkward, like 20, 30 second pause, which is a really a long time when someone's speaking. Imagine if I just stopped for a long time. And Herb was crying as he was reading this scripture. And Herb had been around, again, I don't know if I told you this, he was really old. He'd been around the scriptures for a long time. But Herb loved God, and he loved his word. And just remember those tears dropping down on his Bible. And then I remember what he taught that morning. You've probably heard me teach it if you've been around me very long. I know Ben Stratus heard it like 10 times. He taught on Ephesians 1, 18 through 23. And he said, the prayer of Paul was that you would know the hope to which he has called you, that you would know the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and did you know the power directed toward those who believed? And he unpacked these three concepts. Did you know the hope that you'd be sure of your calling in Jesus Christ? That you'd know the riches of your inheritance in Christ Jesus? Meaning that, that God spent the most exhaustive price for you. And so the price that you are worth to God is the price that he paid for you. Meaning that everybody in this room is of infinite value to God. Because he, prayed an infinite, he paid an infinite value for you. And then taught that, that you would know, you know the, the, the power directed toward those beliefs, meaning that, that anything is possible in God because the power that is directed toward those beliefs is the power that raised Jesus Christ from the dead. Remember, I'm teaching these concepts, right? But it was different. I just didn't hear them that morning. It was like God was driving stakes into my heart in these three things. And I remember leaving there that morning. I remember getting on my phone, right? And I, I remember Deb being a little irritated with me because we didn't have a lot of minutes. That's when you didn't have unlimited minutes on your phones. And we didn't use our phones very much because we didn't have any money. And I remember calling and saying, this morning has changed my life forever. This morning has changed my life forever because this morning I have realized that in me is the power to do far more than I could ever think or imagine. In me, Debbie, this is incredible. That in me, that I have an identity in Christ Jesus. That, that is never fading. That he paid, an, he paid an infinite price for me, meaning that I'm of infinite value to God. I'm not going to live my life anymore feeling like I'm low and beneath. But God, God has raised me up in a way that I can't even fathom or think. And I have a hope, I have an assurance in Jesus that will let me give up my life for all things. Herb Hodges deeply impacted my life. 
And I've had other men just like Herb in my life. But, but I'll say this, and I know this because I spend a lot of time at my kitchen table, at my dining room table with other men. I remember sitting with a group of men here, about 30, 35 years old, and they said this. Why hasn't any men ever sat at a table and taught us about Jesus? Why don't I sit at dining room tables? I said, I don't know. Maybe it's you. Maybe you've never asked. I don't know. But it doesn't have to end that way with you. You can change it for the next generation. Church, just hear me on this. We've so bought into this room being the end-all, be-all of Christianity that we're at the brink of a generation not knowing. Because we do what's right in our own eyes. We're unwilling to be led. And we're hoping it all works out. Anybody with me? See, I believe that the faith, I think this is a great room. If it's not, I'm in big trouble because I've given my life to preaching in these rooms. I believe this is a great room. And I believe this is a place where we come together and we gather and we're encouraged and hopefully you're fed through God's word. You're able to experience the presence of God in worship. But I'm going to tell you this. When we meet Jesus face to face, he told us to do one thing and that's make disciples. There's one imperative command upon our life. And the book of Judges is this resounding gong of failure, 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 failure of passing on what I've been given. See, we are far worse off than we know, but God is far better than we deserve. And through repentance and rescue and and peace, we can live and rest in the presence of God and he can move us forward. But I'll say this, that we need leaders. Dietrich Bonhoeffer said this, the truly righteous man lives for the next generation. See, I believe that all of us, every one of us in this room, needs spiritual leadership. And that spiritual leadership comes through submission, humility, following, showing up at 555, faithfulness, and trusted leading. And don't hear me self-grandizing myself. I am not. I'm grateful for the investment of men in my own life. It's not something I've done on my own. Spiritual leadership, submission, humility, following. These, the need for leadership is real in our lives. So in this, though, we see the prevailing issue. The prevailing issue that we see in Judges, and I believe this is a prevailing issue for humanity. Judges 21-25, it says, In those days there was no king in Israel... Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Again, the prevailing issue. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. There was no authority of God's word in their lives. His word ceased to be their guide. They had forgotten God altogether. The leaders weren't pushing people to faithfulness in God's word, but they were tickling their ears, mingling everything together. Everything that was fading became supremely important, and that which never will fade became secondary. Say that again. Everything, everything that was fading became supremely important, and that which will never fade became secondary. Eternal things, see, these things never fade. 
But all these secondary things, they will fade. It will all go away. Scripture says it over and over and over. Look around you. Nothing is going to last. Nothing. Except these chairs. They're going to last forever. These are our original chairs, by the way. And um, everyone, everyone knows what's right, and no one knows what's right. Everyone does what's right in their own eyes, yet no one actually does what's right in the eyes of God. Everyone knows what's right, yet no one does what's right. Say that again if it makes sense with you here. This is their heart. Everyone knows what's right. No one, do, no one knows what's right. Everyone does what's right in their own eyes, yet no one actually does what's right in the eyes of God. Everyone knows what's right, yet no one does what's right. The cycle of sin perpetuates when everyone does what's right in their own eyes. So what do we do? How do we respond? Well, how we respond, I believe, in three simple ways. And here's the thing. I I don't think that anything is ever much more complex than what I'm about to read. First is we consecrate our hearts. I believe Pastor Dave spoke of that last week. We consecrate our hearts to God alone. We make these kind of statements like Psalm 73, 25 and 26. It says this, Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart might fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. We consecrate our hearts in these kind of large confessions of faith. Whom have I in heaven but you, God? There's nothing on earth that I desire besides you. All the secondary things, forget about them. I don't want them anymore. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God, I'm, this is going to end. But until then, you are the strength of my heart and my portion forever. We consecrate our hearts. The second is we allow ourselves to be led. We allow ourselves to be led. God isn't ramming this down anybody's throat. He wants a willful heart pursuing him. Allow ourselves to be led by God, by spending time in his word, by living and focusing on the Savior and what he has done, allowing ourselves to be led by God. But I believe also through Christian history and through this, through today, by his anointed, by spiritual leadership, by holy appointment and calling, that we submit ourselves to the leaders in our lives and we allow them to speak truths into our lives and lead us into righteousness. It's a humbling thing to say, I must be led. And I promise you this, as your pastor, I come underneath that with the elders here at this church and with about three or four other pastors that I perpetually call because I must be led in my life. We must be led in our lives. And it's something we allow, not something that just happens. And then last, live for one audience. Live for one audience. What if, what if everyone in this room did right in God's eyes? Perpetually, every moment of every day said, God, before you today, what my eyes see, what my mouth says, what I take in, where I allow my heart to rest, where I allow my mind to rest, where I allow myself to be. God, I want to do right in your eyes and your eyes alone. That we stop looking to the left, looking to the right, 
Instead of following the crowd, we began to follow God and say, God, I want to do what's right in your eyes and your eyes alone. And I believe that in this room, there's a lot of people that that is their heart's desire. That's what I love about the North Canton chapels. I don't think we're just going after nothing. I believe that God is doing a great work. I think 13 people baptized today say something about what is happening at North Canton Chapel. I believe that God is on the move here, but I promise you this, just as the people and judges had seasons of rest, if there are not things that we perpetually do, like consecrating our hearts, allowing ourselves to be led, living for one audience, we can quickly slip into other things in which we will be crying out again, God, rescue us, rescue us, rescue us. So today, I believe that God has spoken to you individually. And I believe that God deserves response from us. And so today, I'm not really going to tell you what I think God said to you. But I'm going to pray. And as I pray, and as we sing this last song, might you respond appropriately to what God has said to you. Maybe you're in a cycle of sin right now in your life. Maybe right now you're in rebellion and you just need to say, God, I'm done. Help me. Maybe your heart is going to cry out to him this morning for rescue. Maybe for you today, it's a recommitment of saying, I'm going to live my life doing what's right in your eyes. Maybe this morning you're going to say, I am not going to die before I make a disciple. And I'm going to give away what I've been given, even if I don't know what I'm doing. And just so you know, I know a lot of people that are making disciples that if you got with them, they'd be like, I don't know what I'm doing, but God's good. But we got after that which he's called us to. Because I believe, and I believe in this room, this book is true. It gives us everything we need. And if we can do our very best to get after what God has said, I believe he'll be honored. And what if, what if all of us just said, we want to do what's right in God's eyes alone? Father, help us respond this morning to your word. Help us to respond to that which you've said, that we might honor you to the fullest with our lives. Jesus, we believe you gave and you did that which we could not do, that which we could not give. That Jesus, you came, that you bled, that you died, that you were crucified, that you were buried, that you rose, and through you alone we have eternal life. And Lord, that you have a commission on our lives to love you, to love others, to make disciples. Lord, help us to consecrate our hearts. Help us to allow ourselves to be led by you, by those you've appointed over us. Lord, help us in our lives to live for an audience of one. This morning, as a result of that, a result of these commitments, help us to respond appropriately. This I ask in Jesus' name.